0: Audio Podcast Network. Do not touch your dial. Your computer and headphones are working fine. Hello, and welcome to Finding About History, the women's history podcast where two longtime besties drink wine, struggle to speak, and talk about women from history you probably haven't heard of. I am a 12 year old boy going through puberty. Emily. I'm Kelly, <laughs> and thank you for joining us. Um, as you can tell, my voice is still not great. I'm trying to like tone down my level of speaking to make sure it doesn't crack as much, but uh, just deal with it, all right? All right. <laughs> I feel like every other year, I, I start to lose my voice because I think it was within the first year of us doing the podcast, I went to the Dells and... I, I I swear to God, I caught some kids like crap because the next day after I got home, I was coughing like a bastard and I lost my voice. And you'll get, you guys might remember those episodes because there's the crinkling of my cough drops in the background. Yeah, yeah, I remember that. <laughs> yeah. So super fun. This time it's just like my sinuses are draining because it's allergy season. I know, but it's been like a month or more. It's weird because it's like... I think I noticed my voice going before anyone else did. I was like, "Oh yeah, I'm losing my voice." And everyone's like, "What are you talking about?" I was like, "No, it, it it's I like strained to speak, and it's it's just getting worse." I think i I think I'm turning a corner. It's a little bit better than last time. Like if I speak quietly and maybe use my sexy NPR voice. Then it's your voice dying. just cuts out a little. <laughs> See, I'm, I'm disappointed because I love a woman with like a good vocal fry. Like uh, Karen on My Favorite Murder. I love her voice. But when I lose my voice, bo- like I, I don't get the sexy vocal fry. I just get the like Kelly is choking me out as uh-huh. we speak. <laughs> <Shh>. <laughs> Give in to the silence. Exactly. <laughs> Go towards the light i sorry, right. I forgot my chloroform
1: cloth. Ew. <laughs> Just a little light anesthesia. It's fine.
0: Fucking A, Alice. If you listen to our 100th episode, you'll get that reference because you're super smart. Yeah. You know what? That's why men don't want us to have pockets because we'll be able to put like weapons and chloroform rags in them. Right. Yeah. They're like, mm, maybe not. But I need pockets for chloroform rags. It's like, you no, know, women don't need that, but men do. We need deep pockets. We need pants that are 90% pockets, and we're going to call them cargo shorts. Wait a minute. <laughs> Seriously, uh, when I was in high school, uh, I stole a pair of cargo shorts from a guy I was dating because I was tired of not having real pockets in my shorts and my pants. And I used to, like, we would go rock climbing or hiking. And I was like, oh, my God, I love these so much. But they did not have, like, a female equivalent. So I was just rocking around in his cargo shorts. Literally the only thing good good to come from that relationship. That and some (laughs) lessons learned. He was a piece of shit. (laughs) I'm sure, they have like female cargo pants. Well, I bet now they do, but this was, you know, in the, hey they had trip the late they late had odds. female
1: trip trip pants. Okay, back then. those
0: were so expensive. I know. Try going hiking in a pair of trip pants, and I think then I did once. It's not, it's not fun. It's not. And in the summer, and they're black, and they absorb all that heat. I literally, I, uh, I went hiking a couple days this week, and. My shorts don't fit me anymore. They're too baggy, which I'm like, yay, but crap, I can't wear them because I'll be pulling them up every 5 seconds. So I was wearing a pair of like gym shorts and a little t-shirt, and I was still sweating my ass off. Right. I was like, "God, it's humid." So like half of what they
1: call women's cargo pants are just jeans with like slightly bigger upper pockets. And I'm like, "No, where are my extra pockets? No,
0: where are my actual pockets?" Like, the the bar for pockets is so low that just adding real pockets is like, they're cargo pants. Right. No, they're not. You fucking bastards. Anyway, Kelly, what yes. are we drinking today?
1: So We're drinking out of my box of wine, finally. Ooh, I love your sweet wine box. My sweet wine. It's smaller than yours, but it's fine.
0: Oh, you know what? All wine boxes are beautiful.
1: hmm so um, this is Well Fleet a 2019 Chardonnay from Margarita Vineyard in Paso Robles, which is in California. And so the card that came with it says this gorgeous, gorgeous, un Chardonnay boasts a wide array of ripe fruit notes from tropical mango and pineapple to lemon and yellow apple, rich flavor and creamy texture. 14.2% alcohol by volume. It's a full-bodied white and is best served at between 50 and
0: 55 degrees Fahrenheit. It's super not. No. It's probably. I'm saying I'm 60 saying something it's not actually oh, 55 degrees no. Fahrenheit in here,
1: yeah. No. I'm just saying it's best yeah. served. So the back of the bottle says <clears throat> Like a rare pearl plucked from the ocean, our well-fleet Chardonnay emits a lustrous opulence with notes of golden apple, white peach, and tart citrus. Pairs effortless, effortlessly with oysters on the half shell and days spent where the shallows meet the shore.
0: This bottle looks like I need it with me at my beach house on Cape Cod right, where i like just set it there. Yeah, so I've got my uh, ship steering wheel earrings. I've got my blue and white T-shirt with like a little sweater tied around. I have my uh, khaki capris and sandals, and I'm sitting on the back deck of my beach house, staring at the ocean, right. getting day drunk. That sounds because I'm just a kept housewife, and I don't actually have to do anything but get day drunk. This is my dream. <laughs> yeah, I would like that. We could do it together. Let's do it. We let. Let's fight. Okay, you and I. Right now, we are going to go find a sugar daddy with a beautiful beach house on Cape Cod, and he will, like, pay for all of our stuff, and then we just get to be, like, sugar ladies together getting drunk on the beach. Yeah, I'm down. Cool, cool. This sounds like a plan. It does. But Emily, where do you see yourself in five years? Well, by that time, I should have found a sugar diet for me and my best friend slash co-host of our podcast, uh, which we will have given up because we won't need it anymore. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. No, we'll still do it. We'll yeah, just we'll do, it do it on the beach. Yeah, we'll <laughs> do it on the beach constantly. And we will only drink wines that have like beach themes because this actually has pictures of oysters on yes. the label. It's very pretty. Yes. It's okay. Here's my thing. Oysters look and sound good. No, they don't. They do not look good. Okay, you're right. They don't. But I have always wanted to try them. But I feel like the only time I hear about oysters is when someone's saying how they made them violently ill. Like, I can't, I, I have a mental block when it comes to oysters, but like the romance around oysters i like because they're supposed to be an aphrodisiac i like the idea of like okay an oyster comes with its own little bowl and you just slurp it from that bowl and then you can turn the bowl into like little earrings that you can wear while you're drinking wine on your beach house
1: (laughs) i mean they're not little oysters are generally not little but i understand what you're saying
0: hey they're called statement pieces kelly okay draw the eyes up here (laughs) <laughs> All this right. is the money maker. This is what's going to bring the sugar daddy in. Well, to our future sugar daddy. To our future sugar daddy. Kelly, you're my sugar mommy, <laughs> basically. Sometimes. Except you don't pay for me. We pay each other in wine and love. You know what? I kind of hate Chardonnay, but this is really like crisp and clean and it doesn't have that almost stuffy chardonnay taste it's like right. I don't know it, it tastes like a good summer wine like it's it's still dry chardonnay is a dry white
1: but yeah it has it it's a lot more citrusy than I would feel
0: like a yeah, lot of exactly. chardonnays are exactly chardonnay is the wine that my mom really likes mm. um and that's like she'll have a glass of shard before bed every night because she's classy as hell yeah, She is. and living my dream um and mine is the beach house and the sugar daddy, uh, but yeah, I I don't like the stuff she drinks, but this is really good, and I think it's more akin to like a really mellow moscato. It really is like it's, it's m- moscatoes
1: usually aren't this dry, and I think that's what it is. is yeah. it's like a dry moscato essentially.
0: Yeah, I like it. If uh, if I had to order chardonnay, it would definitely be this mm. at my beach house. It's a good chard. <laughs> Good shard. Cool shard bra. Oh, what was the other cool Chardonnay? Shard bra. Where I read it in the beach accent. That was like pretty good Chardonnay, wasn't it? Um was Sick Shard bra. That's yeah. what it was. Yeah. We'll have to look it up one of these days. But anyway, um Kelly. I go first. You do go first. Is this the episode where we talked about No, it's not. Never mind. I want to make sure. We didn't already shout out the Australian mom. No, that was the episode. Because we had the Australian. Now I remember, so I'm we're good. All right, Kelly, you're going first today. Who are you whining about?
1: Today I am whining about Gwendolyn Elizabeth Brooks.
0: Ooh, that's a name. Also, that's my mom's name. Except it's just Gwen. I do like
1: Gwen. Really? Like it's
0: not It's just Gwen? It's just
1: Hmm. Gwen. That's unusual, I feel like.
0: Yeah. I I like I like the name Gwen a lot. I feel like you never hear it anymore though. I like Gwendolyn too. I do like Gwendolyn. And then your kid can have the option of going by Gwen or Lynn or Dolan or Gwendol. Gwendol. <laughs> Gwendol.
1: That's what I would go Gwendal by. Gwendell
0: the Great. Yeah, exactly. There you go.
1: So Gwendolyn was born on June seventh in nineteen seventeen in Topeka, Kansas.
0: Yeah, Kansas. Where everything is black and white, or in like weird sepia We're towns. not in Kansas anymore. <laughs> there are tornadoes every hour on the hour. Your bitchy neighbors are always trying to get your dog euthanized. Which, like, that shit was dark. Right. That woman literally wanted to murder a dog because she was a bitch. Yeah. Jesus, Kansas. <laughs> I'm gonna judge Kansas
1: on it's this movie just solely on the like first thirty minutes From of the that 30s. movie. <laughs> yeah. So she was the first child of David Brooks and Keziah Brooks, which I like that name. Mm -hmm. Her father was a janitor for a music company, and he had previously hoped to become a doctor, but sacrificed that to get married and raise a family, basically. Because, you know, doctors, it's a lot of schooling. And in 1917, yeah, it's, it's very much, you know, you either have to make money. You know, you don't have the luxury to, unless you're born into money. Yeah, exactly. You know, and exactly. I very much doubt this because she's black, so I assume her parents are both black. So in 1917, there, you know, there's no way that his family came from money.
0: Well, and being a custodian a honorable, great profession.
1: But if you come from money, you don't. You're not a custodian. Exactly. And, so. and it's like, yeah, he could have probably been a doctor had he, yeah, not gotten married or anything. But, you know, if you want to have a family...
0: You need to have the money to be able to support them and you can't do that while going to school. You you know what's kind of interesting about that is like we hear stories all the time that a woman either does voluntarily or is forced to give up her career or her educational dreams because she starts a family or gets married. Right. And in this case... The Dad father is yep. like, you know what? I'm going to work. I'm going to make that green. I'm going to support my family. Like, right? Good for him. That that's not an easy choice to
1: make. No. And Kazaya was a school teacher as well as a concert pianist trained Jesus. in classical music. So I'm sure she was making money. Maybe not like hardcore money, but being—I mean, she was a concert pianist. Like, that, I would assume that she blows makes something. My mind? Yeah. Go her. Um, so Gwendolyn's mother had um, taught at the Topeka school that would later become uh, famous in the Brown versus Board of Education racial desegregation case. So that's the school that her mom taught at in Kansas. Um, however, she wasn't still teaching there like when it came about because, um, literally, like within a few months of Gwendolyn being born, they moved to Chicago. Okay, this I- was...
0: I like to think though she's walking through the school, and she's doing that cough thing where she's like, "Desegregate." Yeah, Everyone's right. like, "What'd you say, ma'am?" And the, nothing, nothing. Uh, desegregation, uh, racial equality. Yeah, well, right. Do you have a cold? Don't worry about it. And she's just like spl- planting those subliminal seeds.
1: <laughs> I could see it. Um. So they moved to Chicago, and this was during the time of like the Great Migration, which was everybody moving. From, you know, small towns or just out in the country to the cities for work and whatnot. Um, So they moved to Chicago and that's where they would stay for Gwendolyn's whole life. And that's what she views as home. I mean,
0: when you move when you're that young. Oh, yeah. Like, yeah, you were born wherever, but that's not your home. I was going to say the place I was born, I literally do not consider my hometown because I was there for like a year or something. Yeah, and J- Justin was technically
1: born in one state, but they lived in a different state because it was like where the hospital was dependent on like, because they lived on a military base at the time, oh. but the hospital was technically across the border that's, in the other state. That's funny. Um, So like I said, Gwendolyn would identify Chicago as her home for the rest of her life. Um, And in an interview in, in like her much later life, 1994, she said, quote, Living in the city, I wrote differently than I would have had I been raised in Topeka, Kansas. I am an organic Chicagoan. Living there has given me the multiplicity of characters to aspire for. I hope to live there for the rest of my days. That's my headquarters.
0: Aww, like showing headquarters. some love. <laughs> She's like, this is my house. My house. Welcome in the to the middle my of my, house. my street. Oh yeah. I'm <laughs> <laughs> singing so a Welcome totally different to my song.
1: House. Da, na, na, na.
0: Please don't sue us. (laughs) (laughs) God damn it. See, it's a parody now, so you can't. And we're also using this for educational purposes, so fuck off. (laughs) Right. Oops, I said a bad word.
1: (laughs) Oh, on this podcast, for shame, Emily. Oh,
0: hey. I checked the explicit material box on every single episode. All right. You knew what you were signing up for.
1: Um, So Gwendolyn did get to go to school, and she started her education at the Forestville Elementary School on Chicago's south side. She would then go on to attend the prestigious Integrated High School, um, which was integrated but still predominantly white. Yeah. Um, And it was called Hyde Park High School. She would then go on to transfer to the all-black Wendell Phillips High School before finishing at an integrated Englewood High School. And I couldn't find, like, why... She kept moving schools like I'm sure it was partial racial discrimination,
0: partial maybe like her family moved around a bunch. Maybe I couldn't one school, find. Maybe one school had a program that she was really interested in. or Exactly. A bigger focus on one area of study. There's a million reasons people switch schools. Right.
1: So Gwendolyn would go on to f- publish her first poem when she was only 13 years old. It was called Eventide and it was published in the American Childhood, which is a children's magazine. By the age of 16, she had already written and published approximately
0: 75 poems. So you're saying she's better than all of us. Yeah. By six, 13, 16, she's already done more with her life than I have as a 30-year-old woman. Yeah.
1: Cool. Good to know. Right? At 17, she submitted her work called "Um to Lights and Shadows, which is the poetry column for the Chicago Defender, which was um, Chicago's like, premier African-American newspaper, mm-hmm. Um, which is awesome. Like- being published in a major newspaper at seventeen—that's huge. Well, I guess it doesn't say she was published. That's when she started submitting to okay. it. Okay, but still, like,
0: that's cool. Yeah, I mean, just having the guts to submit. Right, to a I would have been like, I'm like seventeen,
1: that. my work's shit. I'm, I'm, 30, I'm thirty and my work still <laughs> shit.
0: Well, are you talking about seventeen? Do you think this has gotten better? No. Um, so according
1: to one of her biographers named Kenny Williams, um, due to the social dynamics of the different schools she went to just in conjunction with the era that they were in, you know, like this is when things are still segregated and some of it's not, and it's kind of starting to shift, but there's still a lot of tension, especially in cities like Chicago, where there's a major population of African-Americans,
0: Well, and you were saying a lot of them had relocated from rural areas to the city. So Chicago has just gone through this large influx of increasing their black population. Right. Which, Um, as we know, as Americans who are a country of immigrants slash invaders, uh, we hate new people. We hate change. Everyone's like, like, Literally, you
1: can look at our history and like anytime like a new... Like we get an influx of like one type of people, whether it's the Irish or African American or, or the Muslims okay, or the Italians. Okay, here's
0: we can't even say the the African Americans because we literally we brought, brought them. Brought them here. Um, but
1: you know what my point is? Yeah. like Anytime you see this influx of racial groups yeah you see this incredible bias against those racial yeah. groups
0: i feel like this is our slogan immigration should have stopped after me yeah basically <laughs> and my ancestors we had enough after that right so
1: um her biographer went on to say that because of this era that she was in she faced a lot of racial injustice But this really helped her understand prejudice and bias in the established systems and institutions, not only in her own surroundings, but just as it was relevant to American mindsets in general.
0: Kelly, are you suggesting that racism could be systematic and institutionalized? I'm not suggesting. I said it.
1: Well, actually, (laughs) her biographer said it and I I repeated it. I love
0: you. Unapologetically, yes. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um,. Good thing we don't have to deal with that anymore. Good so thing we figured that. We all put our heads together and nip that. Figured that, one that in the shit buzz. out. Yeah, yeah no. <laughs> um so
1: obviously, like I said, Gwendolyn was writing from a very young age and her mother was very much an encouragement to her. She actually told her um when she was growing up that she said, quote, You are going to be the lady Paul Lawrence Dunbar, who I'm pretty sure he was a famous poet. Okay. I'm like, who? <laughs> yeah, I, I I'm not big on poetry. So Bad English major bad. Um so Mm. Sorry. By the t- so by the time she had graduated from high school in 1935, she was a regular contributor to the Chicago Defender. So she had been submitting and she did get in and then she kind of became like you know, like, oh, every Friday there's a poem from Gwendolyn. I don't know. Ooh. Um. So after those educational experiences, she decided not to pursue a four-year college degree. She knew she wanted to be a writer. And she's like, you know what? To be a writer, I don't need a four-year college degree. She found it completely unnecessary. She she said, quote, I am not a scholar. I'm just a writer who loves to write and will always write.
0: Which is totally valid. And like how much confidence she must have because I went to school for writing, for creative writing. I went in the completely opposite direction that Gwendolyn did and I found it hugely beneficial because I needed that. You know, I needed more exposure, more insight, more of that opportunity to write and then to have it reviewed and to grow as a writer. She's like, I'm just going to fucking do the damn thing. I mean, it's also just are a completely valid, different
1: time, too. Right.
0: But she, I don't know, that that just strikes me as, like, she's got she all this confidence balls. where she's like, I have a voice. I know what I want to say. I'm just going to say it. Why am I paying money to right. say what I'm already going to say?
1: She did go and take a two-year program at a junior college um, and then went on to work as a typist, basically just to support herself so she could pursue writing.
0: Smart. That's why they also made me have a minor. You can't be a creative writing major without a minor in something that you could actually possibly make money at. So I You did. know, plus
1: I'm pretty sure at River Falls you had to have a minor. I don't think no. you were allowed to really? I thought you had to have either a double major or a major and a minor. I
0: don't think you had to have a minor. I I minored in professional writing because it was still writing, but it was something in I could biology. Make money at. You're <laughs> your, I, your I like combination science. of studies was so funny because no it
1: makes sense I mean
0: it does the brain
1: and biology come on
0: the you're only second to Cassie who wanted to major in geology what
1: and did then she ended up graduating art with?
0: history but then she switched to, to she, like, I, she, she, she talked about switching to
1: teaching and then yeah. she, was, she talked
0: about like double majoring and I
1: I actually don't know what she ended up graduating with
0: I think it was something to do with art. Because she took a lot of our classes yeah, but and she still I feel like art. she did double major, but I don't remember in what. So Cassie was my college roommate and she's like one of the Both best of fucking people. That's right, because we all lived in the apartment for a time. Um, and... College was so good for her, because I remember being her roommate freshman year, and she's basically like, yeah, I'm going to try it for one semester, but I'm probably just going to quit, go to the community college in my hometown, because she didn't want to leave her home. Right. she, and she, she had was really very really family. She
1: did, but at the same time, she was sheltered. Like, uh, not in a bad way, but yeah. like, you know, it was... She wanted to stay home because that's what she knew. She wanted to close to home,
0: yeah. And so she actually wanted to major in geology, but she's like, there's nothing in my hometown I can do with that. But she fucking spread her wings and blossomed. In. Yeah, oh, yeah, and she stayed. She stayed for I all think four she years. Was, no,
1: I think she, she ended up being a five-year major. Okay, yeah. That, that's why th- she might have even been six. That's why I'm like, I think she double majored. Okay, but yeah, I, I love know. her. Last time I saw her, she was still working at uh, Valley Fair, though. But I think that's. Yeah, just... we saw her. But I think it's because she yet. liked it. Oh, yeah. Like, I don't think it was a, like, I need this to sustain myself. I think it was a, this is a fun thing to do in she the summer. She took a
0: lot of pride in her, her job. She loved it. And yeah. it, I
1: think it gave her that, like, social outlet where she could socialize, but then she didn't, like, when she was working, she didn't have to. Yeah.
0: You know? She said, I make sure you wouldn't die on the roller coaster. Yeah, it was great. Which, hey, we survived. Bravo, Cassie. <laughs> um, so she published a lot more
1: poems while she was attending the junior college that she attended. And this is kind of when she was trying to figure out her style. So like she had a lot of different styles during this time from traditional ballads to sonnets that used like blues rhythms to free verse. Like She was kind of all over the place during this time. Um, but even though she was all over the place, she received a lot of commendations on her work, and she received encouragement from a lot of other major poets of that time, including um, James Weldon Johnson, Richard Wright, and Langston Hughes.
0: Langston Hughes! Yeah, no. I always just think just of a that rent. from rent. Yep. yep
1: And Langston Hughes. Well, because he's a writer, the guy that yeah. says that line.
0: No, he's the he's the musician. It's the musician that's the, with the long hair and the guitar. And he is has it? AIDS. I thought it was. I thought it was the writer. You mean the movie guy? The movie
1: guy. I mean, he writes too. Well, they all kind of do. And I'm ninety percent sure it's him. The all him right. that says it.
0: Okay, everyone, we're gonna take a ten minute break to go we're watch. We're gonna Reds go and watch and we just back. that section of yes. Reds. Welcome back. I was right. A no I'm cute kidding, cute <laughs> bitch. No I'm kidding. I'm always
1: right. Um. So Gwendolyn liked to draw, you know, even though she's writing poetry, um, she was writing the type of poetry that still had characters. Like she's not just right. She's not Shakespeare sonnets and, you know, like love poems. She's writing about people. It's like a
0: narrative.
1: Exactly. And she drew a lot of the characters that she made from this inner city life that she was living and that she knew she said, "Quote, I lived on a second small second floor apartment on a corner. I could look first on one side and then the other and there was my material." So she I literally just it. used Chicago as her you know, as her
0: writing material. See, I don't do anything that productive or creative when I stare out the window. I just watch cars and squirrels and I'm like, "I'm Is like that the same look, there's a I dog yesterday." Oh yeah. Oh, that's a fat squirrel. That's oh usually what God. I think to myself. They're so fat. There was Especially one- right
1: now when they're all pregnant and you're like yeah.
0: <laughs> Prager squirrels, but I never see squirrel
1: babies. Like unlike rabbits, where I'm like, you all see sudden, the really little
0: ones. Yeah, yeah, you see like
1: the tiny. You never see that. Probably because their nests are fucking up in the trees. I was trees. gonna say
0: they live in the trees, but still,
1: you never. I never see tiny squirrels. Yeah, unless they're like a red squirrel.
0: Which I was gonna say point, they're just, just tiny, tiny anyways. anyways. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, they yell at my dogs, and my dogs go out in the backyard. That's you can funny. hear them chirping in the trees yeah. above because they're like, they're like this cropping, is my tree, hey, bitch. Stop barking at me, you little son of a bitch. And then my dogs are like, let me eat you, you son of a bitch. It just yeah, goes right. like some that forever. Some of those forever.
1: squirrels, like regular gray squirrels, are probably some of them are probably bigger than your dog. Oh, for sure. For sure. Um, So in 1939, Gwendolyn would go on to marry Henry Lowington Blakely Jr. Uh, that she met uh, after she joined Chicago's NAACP Youth Council. So she's starting to get involved in, you activism. know, Activism. Um, They would go on to have two children together, Henry Lowington Blakely III and Nora Brooks Blakely. I, I love, love that nora. Name,
0: nora god also that's, that's another name, you name you we have need to keep... bring back but that that what was it hewington lovely blakely hewington lovely blakely yeah no but... uh
1: henry lowington blakely. okay well i know i hope all... there was a fourth and a fifth and a sixth
0: first of all my name was better but that's a name you gotta keep going you gotta henry have lowington the fourth. blakely the third god we had a kid at the daycare and i won't repeat his name but he had a very intense name kind of like that and he was a third And you I was like.
1: See past thirds these days. I yeah. feel like
0: I feel like you rarely see thirds at all. But That's I looked true. at this kid and I was like, "So are you a prince or something?" Because your name is intimidating as hell, but you still shit your pants. So I'm having conflicted feelings. Do I need to fear you? Right, like mm, I don't know how I feel about this. Oh man! Every time I called him for line, I should have read his whole full you name with the third.
1: Or came up with some, like, cute little, like... Ewington,
0: lovely, Blackley the third. Please come and get your crackers and cheese for snack time. <laughs> <laughs> come wash your hands. Yeah,
1: exactly. Yeah. Always in that accent. Yeah, always. Um, so by 1941, Gwendolyn was taking part in poetry workshops, uh, like, throughout the city. Um, one in particular that she attended was hosted um, by Inez Cunningham Stark, who was an mm. affluent white woman um that had a strong literary background but because she was affluent she was like you know what? no I'm gonna hold
0: these workshops for everyone um nothing does my heart better than like some with, with someone with money and a conscience
1: right and particularly she liked to hold some of her workshops at the Southside Community Art Center so I'm I'm pretty sure she was like you know what no I'm gonna hold this for the African American community and I'm going to bring it to you exactly um, and so th- those were the ones that Gwendolyn would um, attend. And it was here that she really started gaining momentum in finding her true style and voice and like a deeper knowledge of the different techniques that were out there. Because like like we said, she, she did a two-year college but, and then she became a typist. So the two-year college was probably more about becoming a typist than it was
0: about like oh, yeah, it was poetry. It was like she was doing kind of like a trade school thing. Exactly. Like, I just I need mean, a skill so I can work and make money so I don't end up in a box eating my own poetry.
1: Right, exactly. And so this this is very much like where she's kind of learning those techniques and like the history of poetry that she never got because she didn't go to school. Um, she would actually go on to meet Langston Hughes Langston Hughes at one of these workshops that oh he just happened God. to stop by and like... um in She was reading one of her poems called The Ballad of Pearl May Lee. And so he like listened to it and then like gave her like you know, constructive criticism afterwards, which is
0: insane. Um, I love that Langston Hughes can just like wander in a place and he's like, I'm here and no one can say shit about it. Right? <laughs> I, I'm Langston fucking Hughes. Right? I'm in Rent. Heard of it?
1: <laughs> <laughs> he's not in Rent. He's just mentioned I'm in I'm mentioned rent. in
0: Rent, which is more than us. We're not mentioned in Rent. Right. I mean,
1: and maybe, I mean, I, I don't know a ton about Langston Hughes, but I, maybe he lived in Chicago. I don't. I mean, isn't that where Rent
0: takes place? Is Chicago? No, I think it's New York. Is it? Yeah, but it doesn't matter because he's just that big of a name. He it's was like exactly. It's like I can reference Mark Twain, even though I have he has not a lot of connections to Minnesota, no. if any. And I mean, I Langston
1: think? Hughes was one of the first like big African American poets. Yeah. Um. But anyways, so um. Within a few years of those workshops, she achieved a goal that she had been trying to achieve since she was 14 years old. So since she was 14 years old, she had been continually submitting, without them asking, so unsolicited submissions to Poetry Magazine since she was 14 years old. Good God, girl. So by 1944, which she would have been... Thirty something. You could literally say any number, and I'm just gonna go. Yeah, totally. I think she was 37 because she was born in yeah 1917. Um, so by the when she was in her 30s, she finally got published in Poetry Magazine. And not only did she get one, she got two of her poems in in that in the same magazine. So like, that's wow. huge. What's interesting, or what I found interesting though, is um, this was one of those that, like, when you submit your poems, you also get like a little, like, not a byline because it's more than just your name, like a little like biography about who oh, you it's, are. Yeah. Um, and she described her occupation as a housewife. Aww. She, you know, because she was like, "Well, that's what I do. Like, other than writing poetry, that's what I."
0: Which I think is really great. Do you think they just got really sick of her submitting her poems? Or she's like, you're like, every- fine. Every week since she was 14 years old, she's been submitting a poem. And do you think they were just like, put Gwendolyn in this fucking maybe magazine- maybe she'll stop sending us shit. Before I lose my goddamn shit. Right. I am, I can't, we got another poem from Gwendolyn. Oh my God. I don't even look at it. Just publish it. We right. actually got two from her. That I don't get publish both put, of them. Just put them both just in there. We don't fucking care. fucking stop.
1: <laughs> um, so within the year of her being published in Poetry Magazine, she would go on to publish her first book of poetry. She called it A Street in Bronzeville. Um, she published it with a publishing company named Harper and & Brothers. And um, the reason she got in with them was, Was just um, because uh, the author, Richard Wright, who I don't know who that is. He's
0: he's an author. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) And
1: he kind of like gave her some backing with because they were his publisher. And he was like, yeah, no, like I I vouch for her. Her poetry is really good.
0: is good shit. You better publish her. Right.
1: What he said was, quote, there is no self-pity here. no, No striving for effects. She takes hold of reality as it is and renders it faithfully. She easily catches the pathos of petty destinies, the whimper of the wounded, the tiny accidents that plague the lives of the desperately poor, and the problem of color prejudice among
0: Negroes. Right. that That's what he said to them. Of course, this guy's an author because that was just so beautiful. beautiful that right? was just like a beautiful pearl of words <laughs> strung together.
1: Right. So she wrote this book and it instantly became like critically acclaimed. Like people loved it because it was authentic it had like really in depth portraits of the life in Bronzeville, which was which is um a s uh I was gonna say a city. A neighborhood in Chicago.
0: Probably like maybe not really like a suburb,
1: but like, you know, an area of Chicago. Maybe it would be considered a suburb. I don't know. I, I don't thought, know Chicago well. I would enough. say
0: I would say neighborhood. Yeah. We'll go yeah. with neighborhood. Um Gwendolyn
1: uh, later said it uh, it was a glowing review by Paul Engel in the Chicago Chicago Tribune that really like catapulted her into stardom. That's that's what she says. Mm-hmm. Um, but the Paul Engel, who is the person that she you know says thank you for my reputation, wrote, said quote, Gwendolyn's poems were no more Negro poetry than Robert Frost's work is white poetry.
0: I like that because. What what I feel like he's saying is that everyone can connect to this. This isn't just connecting to a black audience. Right. This is about everyday struggles. Yeah. That
1: we can all relate to.
0: Well, and that's interesting because we're constantly presented with a predominantly white narrative and everyone's expected to just find something to relate to, even if they don't feel represented. Right. So why is it that when a predominantly black narrative is represented? It's, oh, well, no, that that's for black people. That's not for right, us. Right, exactly.
1: And he's like, no, this is for everyone.
0: Yeah. Which I love.
1: Um, within a year of publishing that book, she would go on to receive her first Guggenheim Fellowship, which is a big deal. And she was also included as one of the 10 Young Women of the Year in Mademoiselle magazine. Damn. Right. So she's getting shit done. Gwendolyn um, the Greatest. Right. Three years later, she would go on to publish a second book of poetry named Anne or called not named. I guess named is still appropriate. Um, Annie Allen, which would focus on the life and experiences of a young black girl growing into womanhood in the Bronzeville neighborhood of Chicago.
0: I love. So the she's idea. using that same
1: like background area, the yeah. Bronzeville neighborhood, but she's really like she's putting all her poems into a narrative, basically. Which I, I was going to say
0: I love the idea of a book of poetry where it just it tells. A story from one person's point of view because I'm not big into poetry. I'm a really bad English major. Like, because poetry, poetry for me is something that I only understand once I know the background and the context and then to me it's really cool but you know with a with nonfiction or even fiction I can read it and I can see the symbolism I can draw conclusions on my own without knowing all of the context and that's just like gravy when I do my like after research right but something like that is very compelling to me because I feel it? like when I think of a book of poetry, I think of a bunch of like short poems that are all disconnected. But something like this, I feel like I the more I read, the more clear of a picture it paints. Exactly. Um, poetry for poetry haters. Love it. <laughs> <laughs> um, so
1: this book of poetry would actually go on to win the 1950 Pulitzer Prize for poetry, which made Gwendolyn the first African-American to win a Pulitzer Prize for poetry. Not African American woman, first African American. Damn, Gwendolyn can beat Langston Heat. No, I'm kidding.
0: I mean, she. She did technically though. did. Yeah, yeah. Um, it was she, all that feedback he gave her, right? Isn't that great? Um, yeah. A few years
1: later, Gwendolyn would go on to publish her only narrative book. She was a poet. I was gonna say, but now she was like, you know what? I'm gonna write a book talking my language. This is my realm. <laughs> um, it was titled Maud Martha. And it was a series of 34 short stories that followed the life of a black woman named Maud Martha as she moves from um, childhood to adulthood. So she she very much had that theme of a young black woman growing up, which is fine. Like, that's her life experience. I was going to say, that is her experience. Right? Um. So the quote is this. The, the stories tell of, quote, a woman with doubts about herself and and where and how she fits into the world. Maud's concern is not so much that she is inferior but that she is perceived as being ugly. Maud. Um that's what an uh, author Harry B Shaw wrote about Maud Martha like when he like kind of reviewed it.
0: Yeah. You uh, you know what I love about that what you were saying? I can relate to right? all of those feelings. Now granted, my relation to those feelings don't come with the added bonus Color of, of your racism <laughs> which is bullshit but you know what i mean and it kind of goes back to what um someone was saying earlier about how these aren't black stories these no, are stories that everyone, everyone can relate to. to yep
1: um so just a little bit about the book in general um so Maud suffers from prejudice and discrimination not only from white individuals but also from black individuals who have lighter skin tones than hers, which was a huge thing. We still see that a lot today. Right. Um, and this was actually something that Gwendolyn mentions that she personally experienced cause she has a darker skin tone. And so she's like, yeah, no, I faced prejudice from all sides. Like it wasn't just white people. Um, eventually Ma in the, in the book, Maud uh, stands up for herself. Um, and, um, Shaw, the author that I mentioned that reviewed it, says that the book is about the triumph of the lowly. That's that's how he says it, like because that's what the end is. Is yeah, you know, it's she like a she turns victory. her back on the patronizing, um, you know, that people give her basically. So that's what Shaw says. Uh, a literary scholar named Mary Helen Washington um, emphasizes Gwendolyn's critique of racism and sexism, calling Maude Martha quote. A novel about bitterness, rage, self-hatred, and the silence that results from suppressed anger. Which I kind of get that, that a woman would have a different take on it.
0: Yeah. Because
1: she's like, no, I understand what's going on. Like, I understand these, like, sub-emotions that this woman is feeling.
0: I felt... All of those adjectives so deeply, that is my new Tinder profile, right? Like,
1: especially that last line the silence that results from suppressed anger. I'm like,
0: yeah, oh, I understand that. Yeah, just that, and then like constantly obsessing, like, oh, I should have said this, I should have done this right. because now I'm just pissed. Um, so as we come into the mid
1: 1960s, um, early to mid 1960s, so we're coming into the war.
0: Um, Henry the third. Oh, the Vietnam War. Yep. First, I don't know why I was thinking World War II. I was like, a no. war, I guess you should say. <laughs> There's um, so many to choose from. <laughs> um,
1: so, Henry III, Gwendolyn's son, um, was serving in the U.S. Marine Corps and was stationed overseas. During this time, Gwendolyn started mentoring her son's fiance, Kathleen Hardiman, in writing poetry. Luckily, her son did return from the war.
0: Thank you, God, um, I was like, don't you fucking do this to right? me, Kelly. No, he he returned
1: and would go on to get married. Um, and this kind of really sparked in Gwendolyn this joy of mentoring um, young poets, particularly like black poets and like kind of fostering that new generation in to poetry basically now she's
0: just popping into random poetry workshops being like, she's like i'm gonna pull langston some, Hughes let me offer you some advice here right. let me offer you some constructive criticism from someone who knows
1: right in 1967 Gwendolyn would go on to attend the second black writers conference in Nashville um according to one version of events because you know History is rife with different versions, depending on who you ask. But according to one version, um, she met a lot of activists and artists there um, that really exposed her to the new black cultural nationalism that was really kind of ramping up after Vietnam. And, you know, like as people were becoming more vocal in the late 60s, um, there are are some... um, scholars in the recent years that are like no she was involved in um politics prior which we know she was because she was part of the NAACP yeah but a lot of people are saying that you know she was she was a leftist and then as McCarthyism came into play she kind of like was like okay no you know maybe this leftist idea isn't great and started distancing herself from that and then that's when and then that's when she became the black nationalist, because that's kind of like the opposite side of the spectrum. And she was like, no, you know, like McCarthy is bad, at least as a black person, you know, like McCarthyism was is bad, bad for
0: a lot of people,
1: <laughs> you know, but and he was on the leftist side. And so, you know, she kind of.
0: Well, I, and obviously, what was considered, you know, conservative I know. versus leftist back then, like Democrat, Democrat versus Republican, used was to be swapped. complete opposites. Yep. At, a, at a certain period of time, but yeah, that that's interesting. But yeah, so a lot of people are saying
1: that you know she really adopted that black nationalist uh, stance to distance herself from, you know, the, the leftist side that people had seen her take the stance on before. So, you know, either way, she be, she became um, a prominent voice in the black cultural naturalism movement, which is not a bad thing.
0: Well, um, oh, This is the civil rights area era, not area. <laughs> you have, you know, Martin Luther King Jr. You have marches. Yep. You have the. Uh, the protests surrounding the Vietnam War and that conflict. It's so crazy because I, I keep thinking about how, what crazy times we're living in. Oh, the and then I think back to, to like... that and I'm like, okay, well, we're just out of this quote unquote post-war bliss of the 50s which super was not because it was still rife with segregation and now we're, well, into and we're the coming 60s. we
1: came into the cold war and then yep, like where everyone's oh God, constantly the 50s and 60s everyone's smiling
0: while being like i hope i don't get blown up yeah, today right? like i hope a nuke doesn't go off yep and then we get into the 60s where people are just like okay okay everyone pretending everything is fine is not working for 90 percent right. of us shit needs to change we're at war overseas, we're at war with each other and ourselves, fighting, like, what a crazy fucking time to live. Right. And I'm glad I missed it, but now I landed here. (laughs) At least
1: I can vote. Yeah. There's upsides. Yeah. Um. So, like, whether she had been active in the black nationalist movement prior to the convention doesn't really matter either way kind of going forward after this convention like this is that it really like sparked how you know how she would write kind of going forward Um, during this time she taught creative writing um, to some of Chicago's Blackstone Rangers which was a violent criminal gang and so she was teaching them writing I assume to try and like help them out of that shitty situation. And I think that's kind of neat, like to be like, okay, maybe instead of gang activity, how
0: about we write shit? You know what that makes me think of? That movie Freedom Writers, W-R-I-T-E-R-S, not like the bus. Yep. I, they had us watch that when I was in the mental hospital in high school. And at the time it was a really cool movie. And I believe it was based on a true story, but What I now I look at it, I'm like, oh, this is another like white savior narrative. I want this narrative where a black woman's coming in here and she's like, Hey, let me teach you guys how to express yourselves. Right. In a nonviolent and constructive way. I want this fucking story. I want Gwendolyn the Great teaching gang members how to express themselves through poetry, goddammit. Right. That
1: sounds awesome. So in nineteen sixty eight she would go on to publish what some argue is one of her most famous works. Like, obviously, like, I would argue that, like, you know, the one that won the Pulitzer Prize is probably like her.
0: <laughs> I love but, she's still rolling out hits, though. But it
1: really just depends on, like, what survives. Just because something wins a prize doesn't mean that it survives the test of time, you know? Right. Um. Anyways, so it was called In the Mecca, and it's a it's one poem. It's a really long poem about a mother's search for her lost child in a Chicago apartment building. Because like these Chicago apartment buildings, depending on where you live, they were huge. And it was sometimes multiple families, living in one apartment right. and I mean I could I could see that like a little kid that's like I'm gonna go
0: exploring and then just get lost oh my god even in the apartment building where I used to live I could totally see kids getting lost because right? there are multiple buildings and there's a yeah but just, it sounds really interesting I like that
1: um, the poem would go on to be nominated for the National Book Award for Poetry. Um, I didn't see anything about it winning, but I, being nominated is still a huge honor. I mean, being nominated is an honor in
0: itself. Exactly. I'm just happy um, to be nominated.
1: <laughs> after that, she would go on to write a Report from Part 1, which is an autobiographical work. I guess it doesn't say that it's poems, but considering it says she only ever wrote one novel, I would assume it's a series of poems. But
0: I don't know, an autobiographical series of poems.
1: Yep, um, She is
0: turning me into a uh, poetry convert, and I have even read her. Right. Shit. Um,
1: so it's it's a collection of like r- her reminiscing about stuff, interviews between her and other people, photographs, um, vignettes, which are like short stories. Yep um and it would it would be published in 1972 when she was very much still alive and she would actually go on to publish report from part 2 in 1995 so like 20 23 years, later? years later and part 2 was published when she was almost 80 so she was still alive when part 2 was published this is
0: a woman who has just exuded confidence through this whole story to the point where she names the first part of her autobiographical series part one one. she's like yes bitches there will be a part two and I will be alive to write it oh you didn't believe me here's part two
1: boom well it's drop we've talked about this with I don't remember one of the ladies I covered that it's you know she's she she, what I like about her writing her own is she really gets to take control of the narrative oh you know it's not somebody else like writing about her life it's like no it's her writing about like hey this is what I did, yeah, which I think is neat. Um, so during this whole time, Gwendolyn was active in activism, and she also, like I said, held that interest in nurturing Black literature. Um, this led her to leave that the publisher she had kind of been with for most of her career, Harper Harper and Rowe, um, in f- in favor of fledgling Black publishing companies. She was like, you know what? No, I'm I'm going to support. I'm going to support, you know, black publishing companies, which I think is great. So she um, started with Broadside Press and wrote um, a series of poems with them, including part one was published through them. Um, She would then go on to leave them and join uh, the Chicago-based Third World Press, who was actually... um, which was actually originally oh, uh, owned, created by one of the young poets she had like helped mentor back in the 60s. Oh, it's all coming full circle. Right. Gwendolyn. So then she, she published a series of poems with them. Um, and she was actually the first writer to read in Broadside's original Poets Theater series. Which was a big thing. Um, And she was also the first poet to read in the second opening of the series. Because basically, like, they held it. They didn't do, like, you know, things happened. Kind of. It was, you know, the 60s and 70s. Things happened. It stopped. And then when they brought it back, she was the first to come back and do it again. Oh, see, I was
0: thinking maybe they did, like, a yearly event. well, they did. They did for a while, and then it stopped. And oh, then, I
1: see. And then the company changed ownership, and then they started doing it again. And they she was the first, po- yeah. And she okay. was the first poet to come back.
0: Well, you always have to have a character from the original make a cameo in the exactly. reboot to lend credibility. And It has to be the first
1: episode. Yes. Um. Anyways, the one thing Gwendolyn didn't like, or she felt she felt that a lot of um the collections of poetry that she wrote from these two publishing houses um, weren't given as much notice by the critics of the time because she felt like the critics and the literary establishment didn't want to encourage black publishers. So she was like, they're not paying attention to my work, not because I'm not good, but because they don't want these publishing companies
0: to do well. That sucks. And here's the thing. She knows she's good. Not just right. internally, but she has been recognized by the poetry world as a whole as being damn good. And the fact that she switches publishers to so to predominantly black publishers and everyone's like, sleeping on her? No. Right. No. There, exactly. There's something like, you call that shit out when you see it. Right. Exactly. So
1: during... This time Brooks was, or not Brooks, Gwendolyn, Gwendolyn Brooks um, was teaching her first teaching experience besides teaching her son's fiance um, was at the University of Chicago because she was invited by a different author, Frank Brown, to teach a course on American literature. Like he was like, yeah come in and like kind of teach your side of American literature. So she did that. And that was really like the beginning of her true lifelong commitment to sharing poetry and teaching writing. She would go on to teach around the country and hold multiple posts at different colleges, such as Columbia, Northeastern Illinois, um, Chicago state, Elmhurst, Columbia university, and the, all the way out to the city college of New York. Like, so she went all over and like taught different things. And What I think is kind of cool is um, kind of what people say about her writing. So um, Janet Overmeyer said that Gwendolyn was, quote, particularly outstanding genius in her unsentimental regard and respect for all human beings. She neither foolishly pities nor condemns, she creates. From her poet's craft bursts a whole gallery of wholly alive persons, preening, squabbling, loving, loving weeping many a
0: novelist cannot do so well in ten times the space you know what's really striking about that quote is the level of humanity with which Gwendolyn is presenting through her writing and kind of that non-judgmental you know warts and all like these are complex and flawed people because we all are now granted I think there are definitely people we can just flag as like well that person's a son of a bitch but the second we stop paying attention to the humanity in everyone one it makes it very easy to demonize a lot of people but two It allows us to excuse poor behavior. Right. Well, but they were so nice to me. Exactly. That doesn't mean they're a good person, Karen. Exactly. Um,
1: Another uh, um, critic said, quote, the words, lines and arrangements have been worked and worked and worked again into poised exactness. The unexpected apt metaphor, the mock colloquial aside amid jeweled phrases, the half-ironic repetition, she knows it all. Gwendolyn's objective treatment of issues such as poverty and racism produces genuine emotional tension. I need to get her fucking oh books right now. I really want to read the like actual novel she wrote. Yeah, like that sounds really interesting. I feel like
0: that's where I want to start, just because I'm such a poetry novice. Like I was, I was the the writing kid in school, and I actually had some friends who were like, "Can you critique my poetry?" And I was like, "Dude, no, right?" Because it You're means, like I don't
1: fucking like poetry. Well, first
0: of all, like uh, except for Gwendolyn, like all the poetry you write in high school is garbage. OK,
1: right. It, it's it's <laughs> sad, depressive, like, yeah, woe is me shit.
0: Yeah, but usually too, not but always. Too, I was like, I am not the person to critique your poetry because I don't get good poetry, let alone mediocre bad poetry. Like, right. I can't tell you why this is good or not.
1: So um, in 1996, Henry II, her husband died Um, and she would go on to. Follow him four years later, December 3rd, 2000, at the age of 83. Good God. Um, Gwendolyn died in her home in
0: Chicago. I assume natural causes because I couldn't find anything about it. Is it weird that I'm kind of glad she died in the year 2000 because, like, as someone who was born in the 90s, 2001 is where my life got very, very real. Right. Entirely too real. Yeah, I'm and I'm okay like, that she, she passed saw before that. plenty. Okay. She didn't need to see anything from 2001 onwards. She, right. She could just be like, okay, it's 2000. I reached the new millennium. We're all doing pretty okay here you know and I'm just okay now I'm (laughs) good yeah exactly
1: um so the rare book and manuscript library of the University of Illinois acquired uh Gwendolyn's archives from her daughter Nora I love that name
0: I wonder if that's is that do you know if that's the Champaign-Urbana campus doesn't say that's where my dad used to
1: work um (laughs) and then so in addition to that the Bancroft Library at UC Berkeley also has a collection of her personal papers particularly from 1950 to 1989 so I think that's really cool that a lot of like her original stuff is still out there.
0: Well, that they had the forethought to save it and they weren't just like, nope, she's dead, fuck right? it. Well, and, we like can her daughter now. was
1: like, no, here's all her stuff, like let's preserve this. That's because
0: her name is Nora and Noras are good people. I know.
1: I'm never going to have children, but if I did, I would name my daughter I would Nora. totally name a I cat Nora.
0: I love that. It would be the sassiest cat. She'd just be like, yeah, I know See, I'm better than you. See, that just makes me you. think of, like,
1: Mrs. Norris from Harry Potter, and that cat was an asshole.
0: Oh, that's right. Yeah, but that cat knew it was better it's, than
1: you. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, so honors and legacy. Um, as I said, she she won a number of honors while she was still alive. Um, so ones that I didn't mention in my story, um, she was Poet Laureate of Illinois, um... From 1968 until she died. Good
0: God. Right? The The next poet laureate, like she dies and they're like, finally, I have a chance. Right? They're like
1: 82 years old. They're like, I got this. It's time for second place to shine. <laughs> right. um, she uh, was the honorary consultant in American letters to the Library of Congress in 1973. Um, she won a different a number of awards that I'm not really like going to go into. She yeah, has so many quite a few schools named after her are dedicated in her honor. Several of which were actually made while she was alive, which I think is amazing. Um, she was a consultant in poetry, a di- like a different consultant in poetry to the library of Congress, which is a one year term also known as the poet laureate of the United States. So for one year, she was the Poet Laureate of the United States. Good
0: God. She was
1: inducted into the National Women's
0: Hall of Fame while she was still alive. Damn straight she was Seneca Falls, y'all. Right. Uh, She
1: was awarded the Robert Frost Medal for Lifetime Achievement by the Poetry Society of America. Again, all this is all while she was still alive.
0: I will say, I love that she was compared to Robert—not compared, but they're like, oh, saying her poetry is for, for black, black people, it, 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 like saying Robert Frost for, for white. Whites. I know, and then she won an award in his name. I do think that's amazing. Um,
1: she won the National Book Foundation's Medal for Distinguished Contribution to American Letters. I also love that, like writing books and writing poetry, is called American letters. Just. I think that's great. Uh, she was presented with the National Medal of Arts. She was awarded the Order of Lincoln, which is the highest honor granted
0: by the state of Illinois. We love Lincoln in Illinois. He's our guy. Right. Lincoln, corn, and log cabins. I know. I Every,
1: went to Springfield once.
0: Everyone's paychecks are uh, paid in pennies. You just get these, like, 20-pound bags funny. of pennies. So, um... After her passing, she
1: has also gotten quite a number of awards. She In 2002, she was listed as one of the 100 Greatest African Americans. Um, There's a number of schools that were named after her after she died as well. (laughs) Um, Parks. She did get a postage stamp for our collectors uh, in 2012. She She was inducted into the Chicago Literary Hall of Fame. She was... um, uh, celebrated for her 100th birthday which was in 2017. Um, Chicago did a whole ton of events for her including um, an event called Our Miss Brooks at 100 which was like a celebration of her life that actually ran for a year. So that ran from 20 um, 2017 to 2018 because that was I when love she would have been 100. Um, so it included, like, an opening ceremony, which was at the Art Institute of Chicago, which was, like, readings of her poetry and, like, discussions of how she influenced things. And uh, another Pulitzer Prize winner um, named Rita Dove. Actually, there was multiple. Rita Dove, Yusuf Kamanyanka, Gregory Pardio, Tracy K. Smith, and Natasha Trethway. So they're all Pulitzer Prize winners. Um, talked about Gwendolyn's influence on them and their writing, which I think is great because, like, she was a Pulitzer Prize winner. So, like, to have, like, the future generations of Pulitzer Prize winners, like, talk about, like, yeah, seeing her poetry and what she could achieve, like, helped me achieve that. And that was part of her... Year of celebration for her, her, what would have been her 100th
0: birthday. Well, and from her mentoring her son's fiance to actually going and doing like proper teaching, she was a teacher. a lot of lives. Yeah. Yeah. And well, and she was all about empowering others to use the written word, you know, and express themselves. And so for modern day poet or not poet laureates, Pulitzer Prize winning writers to celebrate her is like the ultimate right way to honor her legacy. So on June 7th, 19
1: 19. June 7th, 2018, so what would have been her 101st birthday. Um, kind of toward the end of that celebration that was ratchet, wrapping up. Did everyone in
0: Chicago lean out their windows and just start throwing papers? That would be that would Like be the amazing. last day of school. Um, no.
1: <laughs> there was a statue that's titled Gwendolyn Brooks, the Oracle of Bronzeville that was unveiled in the Gwendolyn Brooks Park in Chicago on her 101st birthday.
0: I'm sorry. The Oracle of Bronzeville? Yeah, that's what they call it. I there. found the opening title of this episode. The Oracle of Bronzeville. That is fucking amazing right and
1: it's a great like it it's a statue but it actually you know it looks like her
0: you mean it's not like an amalgamation no. of naked women we're gonna bring with that up every single time with like giant bush yeah because she is was, the every woman weird statue i i get what the artist was like going i do for, but, but I i'm agree. like
1: whoever picked because like usually you know there's like people submit like they're like oh we're gonna do this and then people are like oh here's my like contribution like here's my idea for what this statue should be whoever picked that one picked wrong and the person that like yeah did it the artist has talked about it and was like yeah I was trying to make her the every woman you know it's not just about her it's about everyone because I like, was
0: Mary Wollstonecraft yeah whole thing. and it's like no
1: like it's one thing if you had like her as the center and then maybe something like that like around her or under her that would have been fine but the fact that they're like no this is mary wollstone but she's I, not I don't actually think it's supposed to
0: be her but it is her statue it, it like and it is
1: but it, i don't know it it's because I remember after you talked about that, like I went and read about it, and it's like it is supposed to be here, but it's most, more supposed to be like her spirit. Like it, I don't know. Either way, I'm like I don't agree with your decision.
0: It's uh, it's Lucille Bluth. I don't understand, and I won't respond.
1: Yeah, exactly.
0: <laughs> but yeah, so that was Gwendolyn Brooks. Damn, Gwendolyn, that's incredible. Yeah. Also, let's bring some good names back: Gwen, Gwendolyn, Gwendolyn, Nora. Nora. Let's bring some thirds back. Start naming your kids now and just whisper into their sleep every night. You will have a child and name them after you. Start naming kids with super gender neutral names. So like they don't have to have a son or a daughter to carry the name on. They can just keep naming them. Mm -hmm. Yes. Yeah. Love it. Well, thank you for sharing. Who are you whining about today, Emily? Uh, Today I am whining about Isabel Godin De Odinay. The sole survivor. Oh, this sounds depressing. It's it gets better. (laughs) Note, I said survivor. I know, but that means but sole survivor means a bunch of other people probably died. Here's the thing: we don't care about them, though. (laughs) Maybe I do. This isn't their story. Fine. (laughs) So. Isabel was born on January twenty-eighth, seventeen twenty eight. Oh geez, in, we're going two
1: hundred years back.
0: Yes, yeah. We're uh we're way out of nineteen seventeen. Any dates that mean anything to us are irrelevant. Long, long in the future. Nothing means anything. Time is an illusion. Okay. So she was born in Robamba, Viceroyalty of Peru, and today we know this area as Ecuador, but at the time okay. it was a Spanish colony. So it's like Called Rabamba, which yeah. is a great well, name. Well, that's that's the the town. Oh, okay, but the vice royalty of Peru is the territory because Peru is on the like northwestern edge of South America, and Ecuador is like this little country right on top of it. Yeah, I know so where what Ecuador I, is. Well, not all of our listeners might. Some might be driving in the car with their kids, and this is educational because geography is hard. <laughs> So Ecuador is like a little country right on top of Peru. So I assume like maybe it was all kind of part of the same thing. And then we're like, no, we're Ecuador now. So Yeah, we can go with that. Yeah. I like that. It, rewriting history. One podcast episode at a time. Yes. Isabel's father was Don Pedro Gramacini Bruno. Oh. And he was working as an administrator for the colony. So he's a big shot. He's a dude who's in charge of things. I don't know what things, but he's in charge of them. Things. It's like, what do you do? Oh, you know. Things. things stuff It's it's way too complicated. You would never begin to understand. What well, what does Barney stenson say whenever anyone asks him what he does? And then it's like I don't know if acronym- he ever actually answers. No, he he says something but it's an acronym for what he actually does, which is basically he just signs documents to be the fall guy for this big company and then he like flips the script on them.
1: Wow, clearly I missed some episodes. I watch a lot of like Pop culture recap please. videos. That's what he says. He oh, says, that that's right. That's because right. it provide legal exculpation exculpitation and sign everything. Yes. He's the legal scapegoat for his company's corrupt activities.
0: Yeah, but then he flips please. it on them. Yeah. So every time someone's like, What do you do? He go, please. And he scoffs at them. So that's what this guy does. And he just signs everything. Um, because of this, Isabel was afforded an excellent education and learned Spanish, French. Uh, Quechua which is the language spoken by the indigenous Quechua people, which reside in the Peruvian Andes. Additionally, she learned to understand quipus, which was a method of communicating and record keeping used by the Incas. So this method, That's and, cool. it involved taking colorful strings and knotting them in certain places to communicate numerical values. So sometimes you'll see it, they'll be like, a, uh, and a lot of other cultures so it's use It's like a, re- a
1: record keeping system, basically. Yeah, so you'll
0: see like a half circle of like wood or something, and there's all these colorful strings strings coming out of it and where the color of the string and then where the yeah. knots are communicating. So it's, it's not it like means, an alphabet
1: or anything, yeah. but it it's it yeah, it's for record keeping. So yeah. that's really neat.
0: It means absolutely nothing. I look at it, I'm like, oh that's pretty and everyone's like, Emily, you dumb bitch. Which yes. So basically Isabel is sharp as a whip. She's incredibly smart. She's well educated. Then when she was 13 years old, Isabel met Frenchman Jean Godin Jean was on a French expedition to measure the size of the earth and determine its shape. Okay. How many tape measures do you think that took? A lot. Like he starts in France. It's like every. Yeah. Just imagine every 12 feet. He's like, guys, we
1: got to stop. Hold on. I got to reset my tape measure.
0: (laughs) Hold on. Tally. I guess some of them go to like 15 or 25. Exactly. (laughs) But anyway, Isabel and Jean fell hard for each other and the two were married within the year even though Isabel was only 13 and Jean was 28. Gross.
1: I mean, it could be worse. It could be like, she could be
0: 13. She is 13. Oh, I thought you said 18. No, she is. Jesus Christ. It could be worse. She could well, I mean, be 13. mean, he could be like 50. It, you're right. This like, could be it worse. It could, could not be worse. Good. And
1: I mean... It's the 1700s. Getting married at 13 is not that unheard of.
0: Yeah. And at least she's
1: kind of picking him. It's not just like,
0: here's your cousin who's 50. Have fun. Yeah. Make a bunch of babies. It could be worse. Like, this is gross, but uh, I will say, Jean was a very devoted husband, and the two would remain in love for all their Aww. lives. So, while the fact that a 13 year old married a grown man is nasty, and everyone is totally correct in thinking that it was pretty common for the time and for the purposes of our story, we can like Jean, okay? He's not the villain in this story. So Jean tried to make a go of starting businesses in Peru, but he wasn't the most business-savvy guy and felt it would be best to return to his family in France with his new wife. And by this point, Isabel was pregnant with her and Jean's child. I think this was uh, not their first child at the very least. Jean planned on staying in Peru until Isabel gave birth, but then in March of 1749, he received word that his father had died, so he decided to return to France sooner, which, like traveling at this time took for fucking ever so part of me is like it's not like he's gonna get any debtor and by the time you get there everyone has moved on like you, your mother's grieved she's remarried it's fine she's <laughs> but like lo- losing your father not a good time so no. he's like okay I got, i gotta get home i gotta start the 10-year journey to get my ass from south america back to france as part of this early departure, Jean's plan was to travel to Cayenne, French Guiana, ver- via the Amazon River to make sure the trip was safe to make and the proper arrangements with French authorities could be made so Isabel could make the trip later. So, Isabel and Jean bid each other farewell, expecting to be reunited in just like a couple of years. They wouldn't see each other for over 20. Hmm. So, just like another quick geography lesson... Where Isabel is, is on like the northwestern coast of South America, and he's going to the northeastern, like he's going to the complete opposite end of the country. So this is a pretty far journey. So long story short, upon arriving in Cayenne, Jean became mired in bureaucracy because the Portuguese and Spanish authorities who were controlling the area were not getting along with the French at the time. And Jean didn't have like a lot of political or aristocratic weight to throw around. So they're like, you're just some random French dude. Fuck off. (laughs) Jeez. I spit at you. Petit that's how you spit in french i don't know how to say a lot but i know how to spit in french okay so basically they wouldn't let him travel back through their territory and he was stuck and that means he couldn't get a passport for isabel so she couldn't come to him right so instead of going to france because he totally could have peaced out and just gone back home jean stayed in cayenne and spent his time writing letters to europe begging for assistance in breaking through the bureaucratic and geopolitical quagmire and writing letters to Isabel, professing his love and keeping her update on his efforts. And I imagine these letters would have offered Isabel a source of hope and comfort through the separation. That is if the letter, letters ever made it to her. You see... No, don't say that. <laughs> That's is- terrible. You see, there were wars breaking out like my teenage face and the ships carrying, it was bad, y'all. <laughs> um, And the ships that were carrying Jean's letters were frequently sunk or destroyed. So at this time, even though he's just on the op- opposite end of South America, to, it was actually faster to send letters from where he was to Europe, which would then be put on a ship and brought back to her side of South America. But yeah, between... it, was just,
1: it was faster to send it by ship than tra- send someone through the jungle. Exactly. Because okay. I don't think
0: there was like a dedicated shipping route up and down the Amazon at the time. But the ships going to, you know, from Europe were getting sunk and fucked up. And like, whether it was just war or storms, like imagine a letter getting lost in the mail today. Imagine it getting lost back then. There a billion trillion things that can go wrong and totally did fucking sea monsters guys it is a problem the bermuda triangle (laughs) she means submarines i mean whale penises did you okay i saw a post that was taught i don't know if this is true or not but it was it had a bunch of pictures of like whales that were trying to mate and i guess what they do so first of all whales have massive penises and they'll swim around towards the surface and, like, wait for their turn to mate. And their penises flop around. They kind of look like tentacles. So they were saying, oh, I wonder if one of the reasons that sailors thought there were sea monsters is because they saw a bunch of, like, whales trying to get their dicks wet. Which is literally the only explanation I will accept for sea monsters. Right. The only ex Cthulhu is not real. It's all horny whales. <laughs> Okay. Did you whale. Also, did you just call him Cthulhu? Because it's Cthulhu? It doesn't matter because does he's matter. not real because it's horny whales. <laughs> so, at his most desperate, Jean actually tried to instigate a war between Portugal and France to, like, get his way, but it didn't go anywhere, which is probably, like, the best. But, like... Everyone, find yourself someone who will literally try to start a war for you. Get that Helen of Troy love, okay? Meanwhile, Isabel was left in Ecuador, then known as the Rice, or Vice Royalty of Peru. Rice. The Rice Royalty of Peru. Um, oh, Emily. And she was waiting year after year with no word from her husband. And others told her he would never return, that he had either died or she had been abandoned. Shut all your
1: fucking mouths.
0: She was not the first one to be in the situation where the husband's like, I'll totally come back. This was like...
1: The original ghosting. Yeah,
0: this was, what, 16th century? Because it's the 1700s? 18th century. 18th century ghosting. Yeah, and... Yeah, he's just going out for a pack of cigarettes and never Never comes back. back, But Isabel refused to lose hope. Isabel waited and hoped even when her children died of smallpox, including the daughter she had been pregnant with when Jean left. So this child made it to 19 years old, the only one to reach adulthood before dying of smallpox without ever having met her father. So all of her children are dead now, and one of them never got to meet her father. Finally, after like 18 years, politics began to shift. So now the king of Portugal wanted to make nice with the French, and Jean was able to arrange for a ship to sail down the Amazon to get Isabel. Originally, he was going to be on the ship, but after 18 years of fighting with the Portuguese and being given the runaround, and, you know, he did try to start a war, he was extremely distrustful. And so he got on the ship, but then hopped off at the first port Because he thought they were going to kill him. He's like, this is just an elaborate plot for them to murder me. They're not taking me to my wife. They're just trying to kill me by pretending to give me what I want. But the ship kept on its course down the Amazon. We're good. So rumors that a ship was waiting for Isabel reached her. And to check out the validity of this, she sent one of her servants to investigate. This little investigation took two goddamn years. But they were able to confirm that a ship was indeed waiting. And like, can you imagine just chilling with your ship, waiting for some random lady to show up? And you don't even know if she knows. Like, she heard rumors because letters aren't getting to her. Right. Which you don't know. Yeah. Yeah, I I wonder if I really wonder if Jean was just like, I guess My she wife's hates a dick. me. Like she's not writing back. That fucking sucks. Like, here's the thing. He's like it's great he didn't abandon her and give up. I cannot imagine how he didn't just peace out though, because it's not like they were corresponding. He's like, Well, I'm sending letters into the void and this sucks. You know? Yeah. On October 1st, 1769, Isabel and 41 others set out to meet the ship where it was docked. 41 others. Okay. Yes.
1: I feel like that's going to be
0: important later. <laughs> when I start listing out numbers of people, you know it's bad. <laughs> Isabel was joined by her two brothers, her 10 year old nephew, um, a couple of maids, a doctor, and a whole fuck ton of porters. This was more than just a little jaunt. The journey spanned 3,000 miles of jungle and was supposed to take six months. Everything took so goddamn long back then. Like, people bitch about instant gratification. I'm like, yes, because I would love to go back to, you know, it taking six months for me to go get milk at the store. Fuck off. (laughs) But Isabel and her group weren't the first to take this route, and Jean and many others had taken it before without incident. In fact, Isabel packed up all of her belongings and was being carried in like a palaquin, like one of those little chairs when they first set out. So she had her clothes. She had her fine china. She had yeah, literally no, she was leaving, everything, so it's everything she owned. Yeah. However, things quickly turned. I know no one was expecting this to go bad for anyone. The group happened upon an abandoned village which had been ravaged by smallpox and burnt to the ground because of that. So they were like, all these people have smallpox. They're dying. Let's burn it so none of us get smallpox. And this frightened the porters who fled. They're like, nope, nope. We're done. They're the smart people at the beginning of every horror movie. They're like, nope, I've seen this shit. I'm out of here. And everyone else is like, no, you're being superstitious. It's fine. And then it's not. This not only deprived the group of members, but the village was an important stop on the journey where they should have been able to find support and provisions. this is like nine days in and they find this burnt down village and they can't resupply. They can't get help. They're just on their own still. Despite the ominous sign, though, they continued because honestly, if I have put nine days into walking, you like I'm not turning around. You will have to drag me back, kicking and screaming. I have invested too much time and too many blisters into this journey. They found a couple of survivors from the burn village who helped them to repair a 40-foot canoe, which the group then used to travel down the Amazon River. This didn't prove to be any easier than walking, though. The canoe was not the easiest to navigate, which, like, it's 40 feet of boat with a buttload of people and supplies in it. I get that. And no one knew how to swim. And this meant that when someone's hat was blown into the water by the wind and one of the party members reached to grab it and fell in, he just drowned. Everyone was like, okay, I guess he's dead. Jesus. Fuck, man. Like, for a hat? Shit. Okay, moving on. And because they were having so much trouble with the canoe, the group decided to send a couple of servants ahead in the canoe to find additional transport. So they're like, "Okay, there's too many damn people in this canoe, even though this dude's drowned. Let's send some people ahead, you know, send back some help. We can figure this out. It's fine. Isabel and the others made camp and waited for them to return. But help never came. Oh! The group waited and waited until they were certain that no one was coming. And honestly, Isabel at this point is probably just like, can someone come back like they promised? Literally anyone at this point. <laughs> can people stop ghosting me? It's obnoxious. So they decided to build a raft and try to continue down the river, but the raft sank. And Isabel- Of course it did. Yeah, because they don't know what the fuck they're doing. It's like if I tried to build a raft, I'd be like, well, here's a log. (laughs) We're fine. Let me find some vines and like pretend I know what I'm doing. So Isabel nearly drowned and all of their supplies were lost. With no other choice, they continued on foot. The group was plagued by botflies, mosquitoes, fire ants, scorpions, and all other sorts of biting insects that just, like, they make me start itching. Botflies burrow into, usually, they can burrow into
1: anywhere, but usually they pick, like, your neck, and then they just live there until they burrow back out and become flies, and it's incredibly painful and gross, and (laughs)
0: yeah, okay, done. So, this was more than a terrible nuisance. The bites the group suffered became infected because there's no neosporin, y'all. The resulting infections killed both of Isabel's maids, her 10 year old nephew, both of her brothers, and several other members of the group. One member of the group wandered off in the middle of the night and is just presumed to have died. Like, I think he was literally just like.
1: He's probably like delirious or just done.
0: Done. Yeah. Yeah. One by one, everyone died until only Isabel was left alone. I mean,
1: we know the end of the story, but still, that
0: fucking sucks. Yeah. It it reminds me of that show, uh, Naked and Afraid, where (laughs) I know it sounds like the trashiest shit, and it kind of is, but it's really interesting. Um, But basically, the premise is two self-described survivalists are put into a hostile environment, whether it's like the jungle or, you know, the savanna. Yeah, just something, yeah. They're totally naked, except they have a bag. And then they can bring one survival supply with them. A lot of them bring a fire starter or rope or like a pot, something like that. And then their goal is to survive. I think it's 30, 31 days. it's, yeah, a month essentially. Yeah. And they have to hunt their own food, make their own shelter. Like they literally don't even have the clothes on their back. And... The majority of the time, if one of the people has to drop out because they just cannot deal with it anymore, the other person drops out soon after because they don't even have that companionship. Yeah, you're they're all literally alone. just like slowly starving to death. Because none of these people go into this challenge and live well. <laughs> like it's always, they have to walk themselves out at the end and they're like, I'm literally dying right now. <laughs> right. Why did I choose to do this? God. So alone with no direction, no food, and little rest, Isabel continued walking, reciting the Hail Mary prayer to comfort herself. And like, that's a coping mechanism I've had for a long time. It's like a layover from my Catholic school days. So when I read that, I was like, oh my God, Isabel, I get you. Because Mary's a bad bitch. meanwhile remember the servant who went ahead in the canoe to help yeah well he totally came back oh,
1: finally someone came back yeah
0: only to find the bodies of those who had died of infection before they had set off into the jungle and the servant mistakenly thought Isabel was among the dead I mean that makes sense yeah because I mean how decomposed if they gotta be at this point point? and he sent news to her father uh who was chilling with Jean at this point because he had already like made the trip I know. I don't understand why. Apparently she should have traveled with her dad. Apparently. I don't know. It's stupid. But anyway. Uh, and it's one of those things where I'm like, I'm not even going to try to figure it out. I just need to accept the facts of the story, even if they make me unhappy. So the servant thinks Isabella's is dead, sends news to her father and Jean, who were devastated like can you imagine like oh you've been waiting like 20 years to see your wife again oh and she died trying to get to you great job this buddy. is your fault fuck off no she really should have tried harder in starting that war maybe she wouldn't have died of this <laughs> maybe she would have been killed in battle you know honorably <laughs> instead of dying alone in the jungle but Isabel wasn't dead as much as i'm joking about her being dead she was still wandering through the jungle she had been alone now for eight days she was suck yeah she was wearing her brother's tattered pants and her dress had pretty much dissolved so she was using a scarf as a shirt she wore a pair of her brother's boots which she had fashioned into sandals so they would fit her hair had also turned gray from the stress of the ordeal The only personal possession she had were two gold chains, which she wore around her neck. Like everything else was gone.
1: Right. And it was probably more of like a... Afterthought, Like, you know, because if you're wearing, like, a necklace, you don't think about it. So, you're like, if you're wandering through the jungle, you're not just going to be like, oh, I'm going to take my necklaces off. So, that's probably why that yeah. she still had those on her. Well, just there's, cause... there's
0: no reason to take them exactly. off. Exactly. They're not weighing you down. They're not hindering you. And I bet it was a lot of comfort to keep something that was yeah. personal. So yeah, like a reminder of home. Yeah. So... What a fitting end to a life full of tragedy and heartache. The woman who had lost her children, her family, her home, and her husband. Lost everyone in the jungle. Literally everyone would now die alone in the jungle. Bless you. As hopeless as her situation seemed... Isabel kept walking, and when she couldn't walk, she crawled until finally she encountered a group of indigenous people, and they were initially shocked by her appearance. Oh, yeah, just suddenly a
1: woman, just bad. a gray-haired woman just wanders a out of the fucking jungle. A
0: gray-haired, emaciated woman. Yeah. But they gave her Probably much- Probably covered n- in
1: bites and God oh, yeah. knows what else. She looks
0: like shit. <laughs> Um, but they gave her much-needed food and water and nursed her back to health. This included working to remove the many parasites and butterfly larvae which had made her body their ew. home. Ew. Gross. Can I give everyone a break to dry heave? Welcome back. Isabel was so grateful that she gifted her two gold chains to her saviors, which like. The emotional weight that was on those two personal possessions oh, must yeah. have been so great. Like it's not even just the value of gold at no, that time. And I,
1: I think that's what it was. It wasn't about value. It was yeah. it was thankfulness. It was, hey, these mean a lot to me. This is literally like all I have left of my former life. And I I'm so grateful to you that I'm gonna give these to you.
0: How symbolic too, because because of them, they have granted her a second life. She was going to die die in the right, jungle exactly. and so she's like i'm going to give these mementos from my old life in exchange for my new life that you have granted me by saving me right so once she was well enough isabel was taken to a nearby jesuit mission where she continued to rest until she was strong enough to finish her journey super bummer side note i didn't put this in my notes it was one of those like if i remember it right but the missionaries actually took the gold chains from the indigenous people that she had given them? took them, or the indigenous, like, traded them? Okay, the missionaries gave them some, like, fabric, which I'm like, I know fabric was a big deal, but, like, it wasn't equivalent to gold chains. And Isabel was like, what the actual fabric? fuck you guys but she was obviously a very religious person and so she didn't feel comfortable speaking out against these like holy men but she was like quietly like what the fuck if I wasn't like near death right now I I would be saying shit and if I wasn't so afraid of going to hell (laughs) but that was just kind of like this oh man that was so nice and then you had to ruin it you fucking missionaries just like your position you're not a good time (sighs) Super boring, only good for a quickie. No, thank you. So she was laid up for about a month before she recovered. In total, her journey, which should have only taken six months, took 10 months. Finally, on July 22nd, 1770, after 21 years of separation, Isabel was reunited with her beloved husband. Aww, John called her my cherished wife, which I'm like, can we bring back the word cherished? Yeah, that's nice. Put Bay away. I am cherished. (laughs) Put Bay away. Hashtag put Bay away. I want to be cherished. Isabel and John remained in Cayenne for three years before finally making the trip to France, where they settled in saint amand montrand uh, and lived together for 19 years. Aww. Their lives were quiet and overall happy, but Isabel struggled with post-traumatic, tra- post-traumatic stress disorder. She probably disorder, never wanted like PTSD. I just
1: envisioned they lived in the middle of like a field where there's no fucking trees because yes. she just sees trees and like has a fucking mental breakdown. There's no
0: people. There's no flies. Like, it's all just so fucking chill. See, I
1: would assume she would want to be surrounded by people you know, I, after, I get like, that. being lost in the jungle.
0: No, because then they'll die and they'll leave you. <laughs> That's how trauma works. <laughs> you, you, you crave companionship, so no, you push everyone away so you. you want to be so around
1: people. Like, I envision she wants to be, like, around people, but not, like, close. Like, you know what I mean? Like... She can see people. She doesn't necessarily, like, interact with them. She's
0: the wallflower at all the parties. And someone's like, what's your name? And she's like, walk away. You don't want to know. You might die. <laughs> but, yeah, so she has PTSD due to her oh. harrowing journey, which no one is surprised by. Um, her health also never fully recovered. She was always kind of physically... Frail? Yeah which doesn't surprise me because i if someone went through that today and even with like top-notch medical treatment i would be like yeah your, your body shit's going to be fucked up yeah she didn't speak much about the traumatic journey but every now and then she would take out a pair of sandals and pieces of a cotton dress out of a box and stare at them and that gives me fucking chills
1: i mean there's two ways you can take that there there is the like she's going through hell in her mind or there's a uh, she's thinking about everyone, you know, like, and it, it, you know, there's like the really negative way you could take it in the slightly positive way,
0: but either way, it's terrible. It's, it's, it's traumatic. It's sad. And it's a little creepy and I'm not judging her, but I'm just like, Oh my God, these are literally the pieces that you but have. That's all she that has in the jungle and you still have them and you just look at them. But like, I mean, you have to think about honey, it. Like that's
1: literally to remember any of those yeah. people. That is all she has. Like, oh, yeah. I would
0: keep it. Well, and I'm not arguing against it. I'm just saying that image is chilling to is me. Depressing. That whole idea is yeah. very chilling. Yeah, I'm not judging Isabel. It sounds like <laughs> you the are the way she's coping. That's because my voice is really raspy, mm-hmm. and it just sounds mm-hmm. extra bitchy. Isabel's father died only ten years after Isabel miraculously rose from the dead. His death was largely attributed to the stress surrounding Isabel's disappearance and alleged wow, death. Wow, way, way, to blame her, people. Yeah, I'm, I'm coming after Isabel. Everything is your fault. Jean died on March 1st, 1792, and just a few months later, on September 27th of that same year, Isabel once again. Followed Jean, refusing oh. to be separated. And she was 65 years old. Which she's like, like, I'm not waiting 21 fucking years this time. Yeah, yeah. she's like, fuck this shit. Death, nice try, bitch. We have tangoed, we have met, we are well acquainted. You're not going to take my husband from me. Like a she. So the public library in Saint Amand, Montrade, where they had settled in France, yep. is named after Isabel, which I'm like, I love Aww. that. There's also a bust of her in Ecuador where she grew like up. A real a real yeah, looks it, like her. Okay. It looks like her. It's not like an amalgamation of like naked women. Uh We will never let this go. This never, is a hill we will die on. Never. Uh, I want to end this with a quote from one of Isabel's biographers, which I feel really describes the key to her survival, because this is a survival story. This is oh, like 100%, an I survived yeah. shit. So, quote, what seems to count most is the inner psychological strength, which is nurtured by purpose, hope, and spiritual belief. Survivors of long ordeals regularly report that their will to live was sustained by the thought of a special goal or task they needed to achieve. With such unfinished business, they don't allow themselves to die. It's like, bitch, I'm not coming back as
1: a ghost to finish my shit. I'm I'm finishing my shit now. I'm like, oh
0: my God, she is a ghost. Where she's like, I have unfinished business, motherfuckers.
1: (laughs) She's refusing to be a ghost.
0: <laughs> you want to step to me, jungle? You want to fucking step to me? You don't want to know me. <laughs> and that is the story of Isabel Godin, the woman who crawled out of the Amazon. Yeah, Soul Jesus. Survivor. Yeah.
1: Now my just, like, neck itches. Thank you
0: for that. You're welcome. I hope you have a bunch no. of like bot fly yeah. nightmares. Mm-mm. Yeah. Oh. Super fun. So gross. Yeah. So Kelly, what what are you thankful for other than the fact that we don't have botflies in Minnesota? Literally the only reason for winter is that they would kill botflies. Right. We just like literally can't sustain them. Thank God.
1: <laughs> I will never travel to South America. Like I want to, like there's parts of me that are like, man, it would be really cool to go to South America. And then I'm like, bot flies. <laughs>
0: There was And a, many, many other
1: things I don't want to deal with. We've
0: talked about this before, but there was a uh, Untold Stories of the no, ER episode. we talked about
1: this when we recorded this episode for the first time. So no one knows that we've talked about
0: this. Well, I'm telling them that we have talked about this as friends outside of the podcast. No, it was on the podcast. Outside of their experience <laughs> with the podcast, there was an oh. Untold Stories of the ER episode where a woman was like about to get married. Like literally was on
1: the way to like to her wedding. And she was like, I have a headache and people were like, it's fine. You're nervous. Get married. You're fine. And she's like, no, I can't function, Yeah, bring me to the ER. And
0: like everyone was arguing whether this was her manifestation of cold feet. And they were like, don't make her get married. And other people were like, suck it up and get married. She's like, bitches, I want to get married. But like my head feels like it's cracking open. Anyway, long story short, they find out she had her like bachelorette party in South America, which I'm like, bitch, I don't feel that bad for you if you can right, afford like that. Right, like clearly but you're she ro- had, you or your parents are rolling in it. Yeah, but she had- a bot fly that landed on the back it was of like her neck. Three,
1: I wanna say it was
0: But it laid eggs in her skin and the larvae were like crawling around because yeah, so it was it, like, like it in looked her... like
1: zits. Yeah. And they burrow like they burrow in and yeah, because it was like at the base of her head, like near her brainstem, it was causing her intracranial pressure. Which was causing the headache and then they were starting to burrow back out. And it was like
0: <sighs> Well, what they did was they put some Vaseline over it because the Vaseline stops they any airflow into the wound, so then the, the larvae tunnel out and then you can Which pick is them incredibly out. painful. Man, if you think your wedding day was a shit show, at least you didn't have botflies dug out of your neck in the ER. That's what I'm thankful for. <laughs> I really, I don't
1: remember what the end of that one was, but I really hope she was like, "Can we just postpone it?" Like, a I week? think she
0: went and got married.
1: I, I think would. she did. I no, like, I, I like. Just I think they had to wait like, like an hour out. or two because it like takes a little while for the va- like for them to react to the Vaseline. Yeah. But yeah, like I want to say that yeah, they pulled them out, you know, slapped some like Neosporin and band aids on, and she went and got married. But I'm like,
0: Ugh. you don't have an updo, do you? <laughs> God, <laughs> then we're fine. Not anymore. Yeah. <laughs> But yeah, Kelly, what are you thankful for? I feel like there's a lot of Bob Fly talk know, that like, we need to uh, move away from. Uh, what am I thankful for? I'm
1: trying to remember what I said last week when this episode didn't
0: record. Mm, the Finger Pyramid of Contemplation.
1: I don't remember what I said. Do you want me to go first? No. Um. Okay. I, I guess I don't know. I don't know. Like, I don't know, I don't have anything like nothing major has happened, so I don't know. I'm just glad my life is relatively
0: peaceful right now, I guess. Sometimes no news is good news yeah, though. Where that's it's where like, I'm at. Everything's just pretty chill and consistent and uh I'm okay with that. Yeah. That's what I'm thankful for. Chill and consistent. How are you? I'm thankful. Uh, the weather has been pretty nice this week. So I was able to go out for a couple of walks uh, in the woods. I took both cheese. I am now a dual wielder of cheese. And they both did really, really well. Like Charlie always does well, but Max, I've only taken I mean, him on one He seems pretty walk chill. Before. Yeah, but like I've never taken him out in the woods and he had an absolute blast. He loved it. So I'm I'm thankful for that. I'm thankful for the nice weather. I'm thankful for the opportunities to get outside because I haven't been like walking in the woods since October. Right. Like, it's been it's been a minute. <laughs> it's been a hot minute. Yeah. So I'm just I'm really thankful for the uh, for the nice weather. Yeah. Well, that's good. Well, thank you so much for listening to another episode of Whining About Herstory with my poor garbled little voice. Uh, please like us on Facebook at Whining About Herstory, Instagram at WAHpod. Twitter at
1: WAH underscore Our website is whiningaboutherstory.com. And our, in, yeah, blah, blah. and our email is whiningaboutherstory at gmail.com where we would love to hear from you, whether it's just how your day is going or women that you want us to cover or anything. Uh, we also have a Teespring where you can get some sweet merch if you just go to Teespring and search whining about History." We also have a Patreon where you can donate as little as $1 a month and get some pretty sweet bonus content. We do Hurstory happenings, which are just, you know, random things that have happened in women's history. And then we also do a
0: video episode and we do one of each of those a month. Yeah, we're actually going to be recording uh, our latest hearsay happenings right after this. It is my It'll topic. Wednesday. I am so fucking excited, y'all. I love my topic. I know Kelly's going to love my topic and we're going to make sure shit. Emily's drunk for it. Yes. Kelly, uh, Kelly drove me here and she's driving me home so she can get me shwasted so sh-wasted. I can talk about some are, historical happenings. My husband also
1: said he would drive you home in case I want to drink a In lot case too. you
0: also want to get shwasted. Yeah. The friends who get shwasted together host a podcast together.
1: <laughs> yes.
0: Well, thank you so much for listening to another episode of Whining About Street. I'm Emily. I'm Kelly. And have an empowered day, y'all. Bye.